Hey, I'm Pastor Chris, and the teaching or conversation that you're about to hear is from the student ministry at Cedar Crest Bible Fellowship Church. If you have any questions or you'd like to get into contact with us, please visit us on our website at cedarcrest.church forward slash students. Now I pray that God would use this resource to richly bless you in your walk with Him. introduction for those of you who have not been with us as we've been going through John. Um, And I want to hear from some of the folks who have been with us um, as a review. These can be simple yes, no, or one word answers. But early in chapter one, if you remember, we were introduced to a man, not Jesus, that will take the stage again in this portion of of scripture. Does anybody remember who that man was? Who is the man in John chapter 1? If you're looking for a hint, you can go to chapter 1, verse 6. Begins with a J. Does anybody want to take a guess? You can say it out loud. You don't need to raise your hand. John who? John what? The Baptist. That's right. John the Baptist. Very good, Jackson. That must be Luke Schaefer's group right there. (laughs) So... Were we, again, if you were in this, if you're going through chapter one, were we to listen to John the Baptist? Yes or no? Yes, correct. Okay, we're getting some participation from the youth leaders, but I need some of the students to participate. These are yes or no questions. Were we to look to John the Baptist as the final person that we were to look to? Is that what John the Baptist asked us to do? No. Who did he point Israel and who does he point us to? Jesus. Jesus. All right. I like it. Chase, I appreciate it. And for all of you who participated, very good job. I don't have candy or anything to give out. But, um, yeah, your youth leaders are watching. and I'm sure they really appreciate it as well. But the main theme here, like John the Baptist, is every Christian should strive for the exaltation of Christ in their lives. That's the main theme of the verses that we'll be going through today. And along this theme, there's really going to be two main points that I'm going to take us through, that the text will actually take us through, that's going to guide our time together. But before we get into those points, there's a little bit of a background here, that in this section of Scripture, we will see a transition occur. The transition that we're going to see is a transition from John the Baptist's ministry to Jesus' ministry. This transition is going to be symbolic of something even more prominent. It's going to be symbolic of something of a transition from the Old Covenant that we would see in the Old Testament up to this point in time to the New Covenant. Jesus Christ and the New Covenant is now being inaugurated in here. And this is something substantial in the Scriptures. Because in the New Covenant, we now see that it is going to be fulfilled in Christ. In the Old Covenant, we had the law and Moses, which could not save us. But now we have the coming of a Savior and a new covenant that by grace, through faith, God's people would ultimately be saved. Similarly, this portion of Scripture is really the fourth successive kind of uh, section that will point out what this transition looks like from an Old Covenant to a New Covenant. Mind you, this new covenant is something better, and it's okay to say that it's better because the author of Hebrews actually says that it is a better covenant. The new covenant is a better covenant. So in chapter 2, if you remember the wedding at Cana, or if you've ever read it, 
we see that during that, they run out of wine and Jesus turns water into wine. And we hear the comment made that the new wine is better than any of the other wine that they've ever had or tasted throughout, not only at the wedding, but from what they've had before. And this is a symbol of what will happen now of Jesus and his ministry in the new covenant. The old wine was the old covenant. The new wine that Jesus would bring forth is representative of his new covenant. We would also see it in chapter 2 when Jesus cleanses the temple. And then in chapter 3, as we saw in the last two weeks, that Jesus fulfills a prophecy. Something that had been predicted long ago from Ezekiel of water and spirit regeneration. And he proves that his death is ultimately the fulfillment from what was seen in John chapter 3 that was referenced in Deuteronomy of the bronze serpent being lifted up. If you remember in that chapter... The people of Israel in Deuteronomy were being bitten by snakes. God had put judgment upon them, and they were being bitten by snakes and being poisoned and killed. But God, in his grace and his mercy, told Moses to make a bronze serpent and lift it up, and those who would look at it would be saved. That was a foreshadowing of Christ, that those who would look upon Christ who was lifted up on a cross, they too would be saved. And we see that Jesus is fulfilling those things. Now, here in this chapter, what we're going to see is that Jesus would surpass John the Baptist. John the Baptist must back away into the back of the stage, if you're imagining something like a play, and Christ would take the forefront. That is what's happening here. Christ would be better than anything that John the Baptist's ministry could ever represent. So as we go into this transition now, there's verses 22 through 24 that I'm going to read for us. And we're going to kind of go section by section. We're not going to read it all at once so we can kind of go through this together. So it says in chapter 22 of John chapter, or excuse me, verse 22 of John chapter 3, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, John the Baptist, that is, also was baptizing at Anna near Salim. Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Here we see a transition statement. And this is just simply an aside that as you read your Bibles, when we see words like after this or therefore, we want to pause. We want to say, what is the therefore, therefore? Or after this, what is that referring to? Whether that's from the previous chapter or from the previous section, it usually indicates either a transition or it's being predicated off of what we had just read. And that's what we're seeing here. So the after this is indicating now, after Jesus had spoke to Nicodemus, there's a transition. Jesus and his disciples go from the main popular parts of Judea to the Judean countryside. And John and his crew now go and they're baptizing in another part where water's plentiful as well. That's kind of the scene that we're looking in here. Now, when we hear the word baptism, I'm just giving you some context so when we look through this, you have a better understanding of what's being happening. Baptism was similar but not identical to what it meant in the New Testament. John's baptism was simply a baptism of repentance. It was a repentance of sins, and he was encouraging them to not only repent of their sins, but look to the coming Messiah. Remember, he was a foreshadowing, making way for Jesus Christ himself. John's ministry wasn't to gain attention for himself. It was to point to Christ. So his baptism was pointing to a coming Messiah. Now, as New Testament believers, have any of you been here? Have any of you been baptized here? So a few of you have. That's okay if you haven't. But you know that as a New Testament believer, 
The baptism now is a little bit different than what John was talking about. John's represented, it was an outward symbol of an inward change in heart. Similarly, we have an inward change in heart. But what the baptism now also represents for us is our union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. We, as new believers now in Christ, have died to our old selves and been brought to life with Christ. And it represents our union with him as well. So there's some slight differences in baptism that we want to understand here as we go through this. But nonetheless, I want to continue. And that'll take us to our first point of tonight that will help guide our time. As I mentioned, the main theme is every Christian should strive for the exaltation of Christ in their lives. The first reason why, and the first point, is that we should exalt Christ because it will be for our ultimate joy. We should exalt Christ because it will be for our ultimate joy. Look with me at verse 25. I'm going to read through verse 30. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So as we look at these first few uh, verses of this section, we see a discussion arising between John's disciples and a Jew. We know that it's just one particular Jew here. We don't know if he came also because he was seeking repentance and baptism in accordance with John's baptism, or if he was just coming to rustle feathers like he had did early, like Jews had done earlier in the chapters of the Gospel of John. We really don't know that, but we say that the conversation and the discussion seems to be about purification. Now, when we look and think about purification, I went through baptism. Now I want to talk about purification. Purification, think Old Testament Jewish ceremonial law. Like in Exodus or Leviticus, God had given his people not only the moral law, like Ten Commandments, but he gave them ceremonial laws. Purification was actually designed for the priests at this time, that they would clean themselves before entering the tabernacle and doing their priestly duties. It was simply a ritual that God had commanded for the people or the priests of that time. We know now in the New Testament with the death of Christ, those are, those are null and void. We no longer need to apply those things because they were fulfilled in Christ. But the point is, is that they were talking about this purification. And all the way back in Moses' time, now to the point of the text that we're in here, we will see that purification was still being held by others as well. And what's important to note about that is that this purification was now taken from just being exclusive to the priests as a law for the priests for doing their priestly duties. It was now set as a burden on the people now that they now needed to follow these purification rites as the law of God. So what they've essentially done is they've added to the law of God. They've said... Not only do you need to follow these things, but they then, through their oral traditions, started to create traditions and things of that nature that would put this burden on people now that they needed to do these purification rites. It was kind of crazy. It was burdensome on the people. And that's the subject, really, of what they're talking about. And it was wrong for them to put that on there because it would add to God's law. And we always want to be careful that we don't do that. So with that being said, 
When we go one verse further in chapter 20, in verse 26, they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. We start to see that it really wasn't about some innocent little discussion about purification and baptism. John's disciples started to get jealous. They start to get jealous of Jesus's ministry. Jesus is now starting to gain popularity. And that takes us to an application for you and I right here at this point. We should, not be, we, should be, we should not be discontent with where God has us in our lives right now. Whether that's the ministry you serve in, the situation that we're dealt with, we're all in COVID-19 together, whatever it is, we have to understand that it can be dangerous and it can kill our joy when we are discontent, when we are no longer content with what's going on. And the heart of the disciples here was they were discontent and they were jealous. They were jealous of Jesus's ministry. And in fact, they were using exaggerated words like all are going to him. Well, they clearly had people coming to them in their in their ministry as well to baptize. But it was very obvious that they were jealous and they felt threatened. John the Baptist did not see Jesus's ministry as a threat to his ministry. And we'll see the difference and the contrast in a moment here. When we look at John's response, we see that we must rather humbly acknowledge, like John, that our calling and the ministry that God called us, or the ministry and vocation is from God. It's not from ourselves. The situation that you're in now, where you go to school, what you do, all of those things are from God. All of those things are from God. And John acknowledges God's will for his life and the ministry that God called him into. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So he he recognizes and understands that everything that God, his very own ministry that God has entrusted to him, was from God. It wasn't something that he manifested or made complete on his own. It would require action of him, but it would ultimately come from God. And we also see that John knew his purpose. As we see in in the text that unfold here, it says, he said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Look with me just another page or two prior in chapter 1. We're going to go to John chapter 1, verse 6. I'll read it. I'll give you a moment to turn there. It says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now we're going to go down just another ver- couple of verses here to verse 23. He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He would, his mission from God, his goal and his ministry and his purpose was actually to not point to himself, not to build a ministry for his own fame and glory, but it was pointing to Christ. He was saying, don't look at me, look at Christ. And that should be the posture of our lives, where we are. You're, all of you in here are a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, a cousin, a co-worker, um, uh, serving in some sort of ministry here, a fellow student, what have you. All of you have the ability to minister in your own lives and to exalt Christ right where you are, right where God has providentially put you. And I want to encourage you in that. But we also need to look at something here, too, is that our, ro- our joy is rooted in Christ's exaltation. Our joy is rooted in Christ's exaltation. 
John's heart was not in things like numbers. He wasn't trying to just have some big ministry while there's big churches out there and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. His goal was not to seek fame and have big numbers. There are a lot of ministries and people in ministry who should not be in ministry that seek to do that. That was not John's joy. That was not his goal. And that was not his aim. His aim was to exalt Christ. John's heart was in being faithful. Whether that was a large following or a small following, he was concerned with being faithful and pointing to the Messiah, the King, who would come. Now, I'd get, at this point, I would give you an illustration, but John actually gives us one. He gives us one as an example of what he's talking about, what this joy is, how his joy is rooted in Christ's exaltation. He relates it to a wedding. Now, I know some of you in here have been to weddings any, raise your hand if you've been to one, you've seen one, you're familiar with one. Okay, a lot of you are very, very familiar with weddings. Well, in this case, we have Christ who is the bridegroom. Now, I remember the first time I was reading the Bible and I came across the word bridegroom. I said, which is it, a bride or a groom? I don't know what the heck they're talking about. Well, obviously it is a groom. Christ is the groom. They call it the, bi- the bridegroom in biblical terms. John the Baptist is his best friend, or the best man, we could call him. He is the best man in this wedding. And Israel, and God's church, is his bride. We, friends, are Christ's bride. We are his church. That is what is being referenced here. And then as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, or in the Old Testament, like the book of Hosea, we see this analogy that God's people and God are like husband and wife, bride and groom coming together. That's the kind of intimacy that we're invited in with God. It's to reflect an intimate marriage that is between a man and a woman that is amongst no one else but those two. That's the idea here. And there was nothing that brought John more joy than to submit the will to the will of the Father by proclaiming the coming Messiah and see that come to fruition before his eyes. Just imagine with me for a moment that you're in John's shoes here. You're coming. You're here to fulfill a prophecy from Isaiah to make clear, make straight the way of the Lord. You see Christ. Here he is. And now his ministry is starting to get followers. Your very own disciples, if you're John, have left and started to come and follow Christ. The culmination, the very height of his ministry is coming to fruition before his eyes. That is where John's joy is. That is what is exciting him. That is what is at the root of where his joy comes. So this should be for a model, again, for the ministry that we serve in. Right where you are, if you serve in a ministry or if you're a parent, a sibling, a daughter, a son, what have you. You have the capacity to have this joy by serving Christ in the areas in which God has entrusted to you right now. You're not too young if you're a believer in Christ to glorify God and to have joy doing it. God is not a cosmic killjoy that wants his glory and wants you to be miserable. There's a saying that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There is a level of satisfaction when God is glorified through us. And that should be our primary purpose. And that is where our joy comes from. Finally, in this this portion of scripture, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Now, this might be something you could glance over a little bit and say, I kind of get the point. 
But the word must here in the original language in which the Bible or the New Testament was written really indicates something a little more powerful. What it indicates actually is that it indicates God's sovereign will. It was God's will to see John the Baptist exalt Christ and Christ come to the forefront and John the Baptist come back into the background. One commentator really explains it this way now as John's ministry and Jesus's ministry overlaps. John's is now coming to an end. Jesus's is coming to the forefront. It's not like John's going to keep his, his doors open for business anymore. His ministry has now come to an end. The culmination of, uh, the culmination of his ministry is really Christ coming up. Christ's exaltation and glory. So all his disciples really aren't going to be aren't intended to continue to follow John after this. He's here to say, hey guys, what are you still doing here with me? Follow him. My ministry doesn't need to continue anymore. Christ is here. That's the purpose of what's going on. That's why he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John's ministry isn't really going to be open for business anymore. And that's okay with him. His joy is seeing the bride and the groom come together and he celebrates like a best man. So as John the Baptist finishes his explanation that exalting Christ was his ultimate joy, he also explains that we're to exalt Christ because of his supremacy. That's point number two. We're to exalt Christ because of his supremacy. Read with me now through uh, in verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So as we see here in the first three verses, verses of this portion, John was really limited what he could do in his ministry, much like you and I are limited in what he could do. He could call people to repentance. He could give them a water baptism, but it's really just like us jumping in water. Our out exterior would be clean, but it would not necessarily mean an inward change in our hearts, which is really at the heart of what needs to be done. It's not the exterior, but it's the interior. And he was called by God to prepare a way for the Messiah, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 23. But he could not do, as I mentioned, what Jesus was referring to earlier in this chapter when he encountered Nicodemus. He could not bring from above the new birth or regeneration in our hearts that Christ could. He says in verse 31, He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. So true regeneration, however, and salvation could only come from above in Christ. While John's ministry was limited, we have the better new ministry of Jesus that didn't have these limitations. It could bring about new birth and regeneration. It came from above because Christ came from above. We see that similarly, there are heavenly things that came. As I look at John chapter 3, verse 6, I'll read it for you if you aren't able to turn there. It says this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Each one of us in here in this room are born from our parents of flesh and bones. 
a physical birth, if you will. But what's needed for belief in Christ is a new birth, a new birth that would come from above. It would come from above. There is no earthly mechanism that we can do to save ourselves. It would require God himself to change our hearts. It would require God himself to come down and to remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. That is the new birth, and that is regeneration. But we see also that no one received his testimony. In John chapter 1, verse 11, John is also repeating here what we see in chapter 1. He said, as he stated earlier, that his own people didn't even receive him. And as we spoke of from before in previous weeks, what that means is that even people who came face to face with God, Jews who knew the scriptures in and out, didn't believe him when Christ hit him right in the face. Not literally, but when he was right in front of their face. It speaks to our spiritual death. Physically, we're alive, but outside of Christ, in our own condition, we're spiritually dead And we're in need of God to penetrate our hearts, to change us to faith in Christ. We will not and cannot come to God on our own. Regardless of what anybody tells you, we are spiritually dead outside of Christ and cannot come to God on our own. But by accepting Jesus' testimony, we accept God's testimony. So this is important here. God sent Christ as the word and light into the world to do and say as God said and did. Okay? Rejection of Christ is a rejection of God himself, for they are one. You cannot say, I believe in God, I believe I'm spiritual, but I reject Christ, or I don't believe in Christ, or I don't need to submit to Christ, because when you reject Christ, you are therefore rejecting God himself. Where do I see that? I see that later on down here. Is It says to this in verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, meaning whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. God and the Son are one, and they have the same message. So if you reject one, you're rejecting God himself. That's the key point that we want to understand here. By rejecting God, we are are rejecting Christ, we are rejecting God himself. Not all roads lead to the same destination, One God that rejects Christ is not the same God, the one true God. Christ is the only way. But we also see in the uniqueness and the supremacy of Christ, we see that he received the Spirit without measure. In John chapter 1, verse 32, it says this, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Many scholars believe that in the Old Testament, where there were prophets, priests, things of that nature, they received the Spirit with measure, meaning they received only that which they needed in accordance with what God was calling them to do. The uniqueness of Christ and the supremacy of Christ here shows that he received it without measure. God the Father was pleased to send the Spirit upon him without measure. This speaks to his uniqueness and his supremacy. We also see that we're loved and in right relationship with the Father because the Father loves the Son. How do we know that the Father loves the Son? 
Well, he sent him the spirit without limit, as we had mentioned. He placed everything in his hands, meaning nothing that was created was, was created by, or anything that was created was not created by anyone besides him. Life can only come through Christ. The exclusivity of eternal life is through Christ alone. And he alone can judge. That's how we know the Father loves the Son. If you were in service earlier this morning, you heard Pastor Adam talk a lot about this as well. Finally, exalting Christ's supremacy is believing the gospel. Exalting Christ's supremacy is believing the gospel. We see that the eternal, eternal life is in the Son, that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That is assured. Peter says this in chapter 6. He says, Lord, where else are we to go? You have the words of eternal life. The source of eternal life is in one place and one place only, and that is in Christ Jesus. Believer, if you've trusted in Christ, you possess eternal life right now. As you sit here, if you've trusted in Christ, eternal life is yours. That's a guarantee. That's a guarantee. It will be consummated in the future, but eternal life is yours. As we continue in verse 36, it's before it says those who believe in the Son have eternal life. Verse 36 is those who do not obey do not have life. They will not see life. This is very similar. The sea life, as Pastor Chris had pointed out a few weeks ago, is similar to that in John chapter 3, verse 3. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God in our own. So rejecting Christ, as we said from before, is actually disobeying God. And similar to the believer, but in a very opposite sense, if you have rejected God, if you do not obey the Son by believing in him, You possess death now, and the wrath of God remains on you. I want you to think about that for a moment. That should not make you feel comfortable. A holy God who looks on his creation now sees a sinful and rebellious people. And he sent us his son. By rejecting his son, the wrath of God remains on them. The verdict is already in, but the sentence is not yet complete. I want to encourage you that if you have not accepted Christ, God is patient and merciful, but only for a time, but only for a time. I encourage you now, do not waste, do not take time to delay. If you do not know Christ, talk to your youth leader, talk to your parents, talk to me, talk to somebody who is a believer who can help you. We want to see you come to Christ. We want to see the lost Save. We want to see you enjoy the joy that we can enjoy in exalting Christ and being reconciled to God. So if you have not trusted in Christ, I ask you to trust in the promises of God incarnate, what you have seen here in these very pages that we have read through, in these very verses about the testimony of who God is, the testimony that John the Baptist talked about, the testimony that we saw all the way from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, that Christ is is the one who can take away our sins. So repent and believe, and you will possess eternal life, and you will be reconciled to God. That's a surety. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. Belief in Christ and repentance, you will be granted eternal life. The wrath of God that remains on on you was absorbed by Christ on a Roman cross so that whoever believes in him is not condemned. This is a free gift. You are saved by grace, through faith in Jesus. And I pray that would be true of all of you.
So in summary, as we wrap up our time here, what I want to summarize is the main point, the things that you want to think about as we start to now go in our small groups is every Christian should strive for the exaltation of Christ in their lives. That's the central theme of what we talked about. We exalt Christ because it will be for our ultimate joy, and we exalt Christ because of his supremacy and his uniqueness. Let's pray.